according to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Join me in Matthew 26. Matthew 26. We concluded Matthew 25 last week. Wrapping up sheep and goat judgments. And we're ready to start a new episode today. I'm actually combining episodes 14, 15, and 16 into a single outline. Event 14. All of these are under the, uh, if you have your Harmony of the Gospels, these are all under the Jesus' final week of work at Jerusalem. All of the events that uh, take you from Palm Monday through uh, the crucifixion and uh, the resurrection on Easter Sunday. Jesus' final week of work at Jerusalem is what this section is called. Episodes 14, 15, and 16. Number 14 is Jesus tells the date of the crucifixion. That's Matthew 26, verses 1 through 5. You can see why we're combining these. They're, They're kind of short. The uh, episode 15, the anointing by Mary at Simon's feast. That's verses 6 through 13 here of Matthew 26. And then event 16, Judas contracts the betrayal. Judas contracts the betrayal. And he receives his cash up front, actually. <clears throat> they pay him his 30 pieces of silver. And he, uh, he has... Uh, A couple of days to uh, organize that betrayal. That's verses 14 through 16. 14 through 16. So as you are looking at the... uh, If you're with me here in in Matthew 26, then uh, you'll see how how that's laid out. 1 through 5. 6 through 13. And then, uh, interestingly, in mine anyway... Mine has a paragraph division at 14 through 19. It'd be better if it was 14 through 16. And they uh, ought to move that pericope heading up to in between 16 and 17. You see what I'm talking about? All right. Anyway, those little pericope headings and the little publishing blurbs that they throw in there, uh, those are not God-breathed and inspired. You understand that Um, in any event. Of course, there are parallels besides Matthew 26. And so, uh, in the Gospel of Mark, you'll notice, likewise, you can break it down into three parts. Uh, Verses 1 and 2 would cover episode 14. Verses 3 through 9 would cover uh, episode 15. And uh, verses 10 and 11 uh, would cover Judas contracting the betrayal in episode 16. So, Matthew and Mark are directly parallel in this narrative. Luke is not directly parallel in this narrative. Um, because Luke does not record this uh, anointing by Mary at Simon's feast. Uh, so in Luke 22, you got verses 1 and 2 that cover episode 14, where Jesus tells the date of the crucifixion. Jesus says, I'm two days away from the cross. <laughs> All right? Simple. I just taught it. All right. Uh, two days remain. Luke 22, verses 1 and 2. And then in Luke's record, verses 3 through 6, skips forward to the contracting of the betrayal by Judas. So if, uh, if we were going to use Luke 22 as our text, we could teach episode 14 and episode 16. Uh, we could not teach episode 15 from uh, Luke 22. It's not recorded in Luke 22. It is recorded, though, in John chapter 12, verses 2 through 8, and we've already taught it. <laughs> All right, and I'll explain that as we proceed. We've already taught John 12, verses 2 through 8. Because uh, uh, because this anointing at Simon's Feast actually did not happen on Wednesday night. It happened on Saturday night. And, uh, and we'll uh, describe that for you. Uh, we did previously when we taught this. And I'll go back through the flashback and uh, show that to you again here this morning. All right. That's what we're going to cover. We better pray first, though. We haven't prayed yet, right? Let's pray. <laughs> Heavenly Father, thank you for this day, for your truth, for your faithfulness. Guide us now as we study your word. Thank you for life of Christ. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. All right. So Matthew 26. Let's read through. It's only 16 verses, so let's read all 16. And then uh, we'll back up and we realize that 
Uh, we're breaking it down into three parts. Um, when Jesus had finished all these words, when Jesus had finished all these words, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days, the Passover is coming and the son of man is to be handed over for crucifixion. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people were gathered together in the court of uh, the high priest named Caiaphas, and they plotted together to seize Jesus by stealth and to kill him. But they were saying, not during the festival, otherwise a riot might occur among the people. Now, when Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster vial, a very costly perfume, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. But the disciples were indignant when they saw this and said, why this waste? For this perfume might have been sold for a high price and the money given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why do you bother the woman? For she has done a good deed to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. For when she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, named Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What are you willing to give me to betray him to you? And they weighed out thirty pieces of silver to him. From then on, he began looking for a good opportunity to betray Jesus. All right, and that's where we're going to stop because this takes us through episodes 14, 15, and 16. When we get to verse 17, we'll be moving on in the harmony. Uh, on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and said, Where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he's going to instruct them to go into a city and uh, describes where that upper room is going to be. And there they go. All right, so that's going to take us into things we'll handle after this. All right. Let's back up now to verses 1 through 5, which uh, not only contains Jesus' prediction of uh, after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man is to be handed over. Uh, not only does it cover his prediction, his prophecy, it's a two-day prophecy, uh, but also starts showing that while that was going on, while he's speaking under the Holy Spirit's utterance, uh, there is the there are other spirits at work, fallen angels, uh, motivating the chief priests and the elders, and they are doing everything they can to figure out how to uh, accomplish what Jesus said uh, the Father is bringing about, what Jesus said is actually going to happen. And so it's kind of neat to see, uh, you know, if this was to be put on video, it would probably be on a split screen, right, where Jesus on one half of the TV is talking to his disciples, and then these conspirators over here are trying to put their plans together. And it's happening here on this Wednesday night, of the uh, of the Passion Week. All right, let's talk about short-term prophecies. Point one: short-term prophecies confirm the reality of long-term prophecies. Let's understand this. <clears throat> so, point one in your outline: short-term prophecies confirm the reality of long-term prophecies. Now, it may not seem like much of a big deal that he's making a prediction uh, for two days from now. All right. But truly, which of us know anything about tomorrow? <laughs> okay. Uh, to make one day prophecies, uh, it requires foreknowledge, requires a recognition of what's going to happen tomorrow. And the humanity does not know what's going to happen tomorrow. Uh, I can remember what happened yesterday, but I cannot remember what happened tomorrow or pre-member would be a better term. All right. You like that? So it would be kind of interesting if we could remember yesterday and pre-member tomorrow, but we're not entitled to that. All right. Well, I've got to contact Merriam-Webster and, uh, and uh, tra trademark that term. I want royalties on that. Now, uh, let's understand that it may not seem like a big deal, but understand that he has been giving message after message after message after message. And some of these are prophecies that uh, that are weeks and months away and some of them are years away and some of them are thousands of years away. And so how do we know that the ones that are thousands of years away are trustworthy or reliable or, or worth paying attention to? Well, we know because the short term ones are happening immediately and they're happening exactly, precisely, literally as they were spoken. All right. And that becomes important. So there is a principle for this. Deuteronomy 18.22 and other passages we'll see here shortly, but let's just start with this one. This one sets the table. 
There is, uh, of course, this is uh, a significant chapter because Moses is their great lawgiver and uh, the one who leads them out of bondage and so forth. Uh, he has a tremendous pattern in typology for the being a type of Christ. And yet he says in verse 15, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen, you shall listen to him. And this we understand is Jesus. He's the fulfillment of this. The, not only do we understand this because it's obvious, but uh, we're, we're told this in the book of Acts, that Jesus is the prophet like unto Moses. And in fact, greater than Moses. And then some uh, um, other things here. Uh, verse 18, I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you, and I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. It shall come about that whoever will not listen to my words, which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. This is why rejection of the, of the gospel message of Jesus Christ is, uh, is uh, the criteria by which those that reject Christ go to hell. Anyway, moving on from there, it says, uh, but the prophet who speaks a word presumptuously in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or which he speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. The penalty for being a false prophet is death. And you may say in your heart, how will we know uh, the word which the Lord has not spoken? And here it is in verse 22. When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not come about or come true, that is the thing which uh, the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. All right. You shall not be afraid of him. So the short term prophecies, if they don't come about, then, you know, the guy wasn't from the Lord. If he says, thus saith the Lord and it doesn't come about, you've, you've just exposed your false prophet. There's other issues, too, connected to that that I won't get into this morning. You understand that Satan can try to mimic things and he can bring about short-term prophecies, too. And so there are additional criteria whereby, okay, if it does come about, but his message contradicts the Word of God, that's another clue. All right, so just because it comes about doesn't mean that he's legitimate. He still could be a fraud. It could be satanic imitation. You've got to find out, does the message... Uh, is it conformable to the Word of God? And, and things of that nature you have to examine. But if it doesn't come about, well then, clearly God didn't send him. Obviously, he's a fraud, he's a phony, he needs to be put to death. That's a big criteria. So, let's uh, understand, this is not the first time, Jesus didn't wait to get to within two days of his crucifixion to say he's going to be crucified. Alright? <laughs> so, uh, sub point A. Jesus had previously spoken of his crucifixion. And we'll look at these verses here in a moment. Jesus had previously spoken of his crucifixion, but on this night he pinpoints the very day. On this night he pinpoints the very day. So we're starting in Matthew 16, going on into chapter 17, going on into chapter 20, he gave them more and more and more information related to his crucifixion. Doesn't use the word crucifixion until chapter 20, but he does talk about his betrayal, his death, his resurrection. But on this night, he pinpoints the very day. He's within 48 hours. He's within 48 hours. And uh, given that this is Wednesday night after they've departed from the temple... They're on their way back to, uh, to Bethany where they've been spending each night all week long. Uh, he's giving them the final Mount Olivet Discourse and uh, headed into to Bethany. This is Wednesday night. This is his final night of sleep. You understand? Because on Thursday, he doesn't get any sleep. On Thursday, they have the, the, the Passover dinner. And then after dinner, uh, the foot washing and communion. And then after that, they go out and, and have a prayer meeting in the... Uh, Garden of Gethsemane, and about midnight is when he gets arrested. And then he gets hauled off, and he has three different trials in different venues and things. And we've got all of this study coming up. So Thursday night, he gets no sleep. <laughs> and Friday morning, he has his final trials, and, and then, uh, and then the, the crucifixion itself there on Friday. So um, he's giving this message here uh, on this Wednesday night, shortly before he gets his last night of sleep. And I find that to be interesting. All right. And so it is significant. It is after two days 
prophecy. And uh, we want to pay attention to short-term prophecies and how they validate the prophets and uh, point to future fulfillment of the long-term prophecies. Uh, the accuracy of his death and resurrection prophecies confirms the accuracy of his Mount Olivet prophecies. What he just got done delivering on the Mount Olivet Discourse. What we just got done studying over recent weeks pertaining to the times of the end and the wars and rumors of wars and the famines and earthquakes and the, the sheep and goat judgment and all of the things pertaining to the tribulation and second advent of, of Jesus Christ. How do we know all that's accurate? Well, now he follows up with this short-term prophecy saying, two days from now I'm going to the cross. And he's right. That's exactly it. Okay, so let's turn back to Matthew 16 and let's remind ourselves of previous messages. And I enjoy this because um, <laughs> you look at how many times that Jesus had to pound this through their thick skulls, <laughs> right? And uh, I figure my skull is thicker than theirs ever was, so uh, it's, it's a good encouragement for how we operate around here and how it is the Lord gives us messages and we might get them again and again and again and again. And maybe on the third or fourth time, fifth time, uh, it'll finally start to sink in on me. Oh, that's what this is about. And so the first time, uh, it maybe it's not going to be embraced very well, right? And uh, we see this in Matthew 16:21. From that time, from that time, this indicates a turning point. This indicates a beginning moment. And thereafter, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. And uh, as I said, uh, sometimes if it's the first time you've heard something, uh, you don't take it very well. So that can't be right. <laughs> What's that about? And so Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him saying, Meganoita, may it never be. God forbid it, Lord. This shall never happen to you. All right, well, uh, first impression didn't hit Peter very well. Thankfully, though, uh, the Lord doesn't. What does the Lord do? Does he back off? Does he say, oh, okay, well, yeah. I mean, it's true, but my disciples aren't taking it very well. I better just back off. He can't handle this. No, he's going to give it to him again and again and again and again. And if he can't handle it, he better start handling it because he doesn't have a choice. This is what they need. So he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. If you're not setting your mind on God's interest, but man's. And so there, uh, there it is. And I enjoy this. This is uh, in, in Matthew 16. You got Peter's shining moment with blessed are you, Simon Barjona. And, uh, you know, on this great confession, shall the church be built? And then the very next pa paragraph after that, he starts showing them about the cross. About He doesn't use the word cross, though. Um, he must suffer and uh, be killed and raised up on the third day. And he goes from, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, to get behind me, Satan, like that. Okay? And if you, don't, if you don't take heed to that, I know I do, I hope you do too, take heed to that, how quickly that can turn to recognize that you can have a great victory one moment, maybe in passing a test or bearing fruit or leading somebody to Christ or a, a tremendous spiritual high. And then the very, you turn around and blank and now you're denying Christ or now you're, you're setting your mind on man's interest and you're a stumbling block. You better, better be on guard against that. All right, then the next chapter over, chapter 17. He takes him up on the mountain, is transfigured before them. And then uh, they come down off the mountain. In verse 9, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. Well, there he goes talking about that resurrection from the dead again. What does that mean? It means he's going to die. It means he's going to be raised again. Why does he keep talking about that? You know, didn't Peter did not like that in the last chapter? <laughs> But the Lord's not ducking it. And so uh, you glance down here, they got questions. And um, why do they say that Elijah has to come first? And he answered and said, well, Elijah is coming and he will restore all things. All right. Now, this is my pattern, by the way, for why we do question and answer not on Wednesdays, for why I enjoy taking this opportunity. Let's make sure we're straight on things. Elijah is coming. He will restore all things. 
Second advent, Elijah will come. There will be a ministry of Elijah in the tribulation of Israel. But I say to you that Elijah already came. That is uh, John the Baptist and the spirit and power of Elijah. Elijah already came and they did not recognize him, but they did to him whatever they wished. Okay, so if John the Baptist is the the Elijah already came in the spirit and power of Elijah, um, could it not also be true that another prophet in the tribulational time will come in the spirit and power of Elijah and it won't be actually be a literal Elijah on the earth? That's a possibility. All right. So also the son of man is going to suffer at their hands. Will you quit talking about that? <laughs> you keep bringing that up. Stop it. We don't like those messages. But he's not going to let it go. Um, down to verse 22. While they were gathered together in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. Quit it. <laughs> there you go again. Okay. And they will kill him and he will be raised up on the third day. And they were deeply grieved. Deeply grieved. Let me ask, were they grieved because of the content of what he was telling them? Or they were grieved because he kept telling them over and over and over again. All right? Or both. Now, so far he's not used the word crucifixion. And so far he hasn't exactly said when. All right? And... Uh, as we as we broke down the timing on this and tracked the different ministries, uh, we get into now chapter 20, verses 18 and 19. As Jesus was about to go up to Jerusalem. So we're about to go up to Jerusalem. We're approaching now Palm Monday. We're approaching now the Passion Week. He took the twelve aside by themselves. This is only for them, not for the other hangers-on and so forth. And uh, on the way and said to them, behold, we are going up to Jerusalem and this is the occasion. This is they're going up for the Passover season. All right. We're going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes and they will condemn him to death. And they will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him. And on the third day, he will be raised up. This is the trip now. On this Saturday or this Sunday, heading up there, getting ready for Palm Monday. He doesn't say on which day. He doesn't say when. And you might expect um, that the, the disciples got pretty excited on um, Palm Monday, right? Because the kids are singing Hosanna and they're singing psalms and they're waving palm branches and the, the crowds are going wild and everything seems to be all right. Hadn't been arrested yet. And on Tuesday, hadn't been arrested yet. There's more messages. There's more uh, miracles. There's more power. And then on Wednesday, hadn't been arrested yet. More teaching in the temple. More uh, the withered fig tree and more miracles and more healing and more. Uh, and this awesome, awesome Mount Olivet discourse. Unbelievable. Prophecies of the kingdom and prophecies of victory and prophecies of all this stuff. And he hasn't been arrested yet. But the last thing he says here on this Wednesday night, he says it is now two days until the Passover. When? On that day. Okay. I will be arrested. I will be killed and raised on the third day. And so he's back to that again. And he's back to that again. And I think this is where it's just too much. And Judas Iscariot says that's it. And while the other disciples go off to where they're sleeping, Judas goes into the chief priests and the elders and says, all right, pay me the money. <laughs> okay? Based on this. So Jesus had previously spoken of his crucifixion, but on this night he pinpoints the very day. The accuracy of his death and resurrection prophecies confirms the accuracy of his Mount Olivet prophecies. There are other examples. Point B. Other examples of short-term and long-term long Old Testament prophets. This is actually a vital study. This is something that Bob's going through right now. B3, Bob the Son, in, uh, in Kiev. They're in a four-week module at the moment going through all uh, 16 of the uh, major and minor prophets in the Old Testament from Isaiah to Malachi. 
Other examples of short-term and long-term Old Testament prophets. And I may take this out of order. Let me see. Yeah, Isaiah 7, 14 through 16. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Uh, Isaiah 8, verses 1 through 4. Of course, Matthew 1, verses 18 through 25. Uh, You've got a short-term and a long-term there with that prophecy. Um, but maybe the better ones would be to start with... Jer- let's start with Jeremiah. Jeremiah 28, 9. And Jeremiah 32. Let's start with those. And then we'll go back in because Isaiah takes more work. Uh, Jeremiah 28. Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, the, the man that had to watch Jerusalem fall from inside Jerusalem. The man who watched his nation destroyed, the man who saw the uh, the end of, of the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom's already gone by now, and Jerusalem is surrounded by armies, and things are pretty grim. You know, do you want to be a pastor during the time that your nation is going out under the fifth cycle of discipline? What kind of encouragement do you offer your people when uh, when uh, these things are happening? And so it's interesting here in Jeremiah 28. Uh, he has to deal not only with his own ministry, but then he's got false prophets to deal with as well. And uh, you got Hananiah here. Hananiah. And uh, this is, uh, if you're not familiar with this, this is remarkable. The colonel taught Jeremiah and took him years and years to go through. It's one of the most powerful things he ever taught. And uh, I'm thinking someday that uh, this would be a blessing to teach as well. I want to teach Isaiah and Jeremiah back to back and take about 20 years to do it. All right. Um, In the same year, in the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah, king of Judah, in the fourth year, in the fifth month, Hananiah, the son of Azur, the prophet, who is from Gibeon, spoke to me in the house of the Lord, in the presence of the priests and all the people, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I have broken the yoke of the king of Babylon. Woohoo! Good news. Um, Within two years. I'm going to bring back to this place all the vessels of the Lord's house, which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, took away from this place and carried to Babylon. I'm also going to bring back to this place Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah. He's the last rightful king. Zedekiah was appointed as a puppet king. And all the exiles of Judah who went to Babylon declares the Lord, for I will break the yoke of the king of Babylon. So there you go. There's a short term prophecy. This isn't some kind of obscure Nostradamus kind of 6,000 years from now that no one really knows and I'll be dead anyway by the time I'm proven wrong kind of, kind of flaky thing, right? This is two years from now. This is what's going to happen. Then the prophet Jeremiah spoke to the prophet Hananiah in the presence of the priests and the presence of all the peoples who were standing in the house of the Lord. And the prophet Jeremiah said, Amen, brother. Tongue firmly in cheek. May the Lord do so. May the Lord confirm your words, which you have prophesied to bring back the vessels of the Lord's house and all the exiles. And he's going to repeat this word for word. He says, I want to be very clear on this. To bring back the vessels of the Lord's house and all the exiles from Babylon to this place. Yet, yet, hear now this word, which I am about to speak in your hearing and in the hearing of all the people. The prophets who were before me and before you from ancient times prophesied against many lands and against great kingdoms of war and calamity and of pestilence. The prophet who prophesies of peace, when the word of the prophet comes to pass, then that prophet will be known as one whom the Lord has truly sent. So what do you think happens here? <laughs> All right. It's not going to happen. They don't have peace. They don't come back in two years. They don't come back for 70 years. Jeremiah is right and Hananiah is a false prophet. So then Hananiah the prophet took the yoke from the neck of Jeremiah the prophet and broke it. And Hananiah spoke in the presence of all the people, saying, Thus says the Lord, Even so will I break within two full years the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, from the neck of all the nations. Then the prophet Jeremiah went on his way. And uh, it's interesting what happens here. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah after Hananiah the prophet had broken the yoke from off the neck of the prophet Jeremiah, saying, Go and speak to Hananiah and say, Thus says the Lord, You've broken the yokes of wood, but you've made instead of them yokes of iron. 
For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I have put a yoke of iron on the neck of all these nations that they may serve Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and they will serve him. I have also given to him the beasts of the field. And, uh, and that. So let's get down to chapter 32. And I've um, got another example. Oh, there's some good stuff in here. Um, all right, I'm tempted to read one through five, but I'll let that go. Uh, verse six, here's another example, okay? Unrelated to what we just read, different story, different example. Jeremiah said, in Jeremiah 32, 6, uh, The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Behold, Hanamal, the son of Shalom, your uncle, is coming to you, saying, Buy for yourself my field, which is at Anathoth, for you have the right of redemption to buy it. Then, and, and so what happens? Hanamal, my uncle's son, came to me <laughs> in the court of the guard, according to the word of the Lord, and said to me, Buy my field, please. That is at Enathoth, which is in the land of Benjamin, for you have the right of possession and uh, the redemption is yours. Buy it for yourself. Then I knew this was the word of the Lord. All right. This is similar to, uh, you know, I have tell the story many times when Samuel is sitting there and the Lord says, at this time tomorrow, a young man from the tribe of Benjamin is going to come and he's looking for his father's donkeys. You need to take him and anoint him as king over, over Israel. And sure enough, the very next day, what happens? Here comes Saul of Benjamin, and, and the Lord says, that's who I told you yesterday. And he comes looking for his father's donkeys, all right? These short-term prophecies, this, I think we've got this example right here, you know? Animal's going to come and tell you about this field in Anathoth. You need to buy it. And then the next day, here comes, you know, his cousin and the son of his uncle and, and uh, has this right of redemption here for this land. And so what does he do? He buys it. I bought the field, which is in Anathoth, from Hanamal, my uncle's son. All right. Anyway, I find this interesting. I find this very remarkable. I think that there's more of this than we're aware of. And uh, the more examples we find in Scripture, the more we're wondering, uh, was, this, was this common practice? Is this how Old Testament prophets operated, for example? Uh, is this, uh, uh, this is an interesting thing to consider. How our Lord operated, by the way, as an Old Testament prophet. When he sees Nathaniel under the, under the tree and he's praying. How did he know that Nathaniel was under the tree praying? Saying, he says before, you know, uh, when, when he was introduced there in John chapter 2 or John chapter 1. Anyway, other applications there. Okay, uh, let's go to Isaiah. Let's look at this next one, Isaiah 7. Because in some passages, in some prophecies, the same message can have both a short and a long application. And this is an important consideration as we study Old Testament prophecies and New Testament fulfillments, okay? So understand that there's a couple of different ways to approach prophecy. God may give, God may give a short prophecy like uh, your uncle's son is coming tomorrow to, to offer you a piece of land. Buy it, okay? And that's a short-term prophecy, which because it comes true, you realize that the Lord is with you and the Lord is giving you true prophecies. And so Longer-term prophecies are then validated. Like after 70 years, Israel will come back from, from Babylon. After 70 years, they will return from their captivity. And you have full assurance of the 70-year prophecy because the one-day prophecy just happened just like that. Okay, So that's one way to look at this. Are we clear on that? Another way that God sends prophecy is this one here in Isaiah, whereby a single message actually will have a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment both but both being fulfillments of the single prophetic message and so when it says the lord himself will give you a sign behold a virgin will be with child and bear a son and she will call his name emmanuel he will eat curds and honey at the time he knows enough to refuse evil and choose good for before the boy will know enough to refuse evil and choose good, the land whose two kings you dread will be forsaken. Now this is a sign, and this is a sign very specifically that's given to Judah, that's given to, uh, to Jerusalem here, but it's given as an encouragement with respect to the nations that are currently threatening. 
and those nations that are currently threatening here um, in this context here, if you read back to the beginning of chapter 7, you'll, you're going to understand all that. Now, so before this boy is old enough to reach, you know, the age of accountability, we, we would say in today's vocabulary, while he's still a toddler, while he's still a, a little ragamuffin, all right, the nations that are threatening will be forsaken. The land whose two kings you dread will be forsaken. All right. And so this, this prophetic message is going to be a great encouragement. Now, we're very, um, we're hampered because we're church age saints and we have a New Testament. All right. We have a gospel of Matthew that says that as, as age, uh, Gabriel comes to Mary and announces her virgin birth and she gets pregnant, she gives birth to her son, that this is to fulfill what was spoken of through Isaiah the prophet. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Okay, so we know immediately that this verse is about Jesus. And it's fulfilled in Matthew 1, verses 18 through 25. Or in Luke, if you want to look at the announcement to Mary in Luke. All right, but... Put yourself back down in the Old Testament. You don't have the book of Matthew. You don't have the book of Luke. You don't know about Jesus. You don't know about the manger. You don't know about the Gospels in the New Testament. You have Isaiah. A virgin or a young woman, a Alma, uh, will conceive and bear a son. All right. And in his youth, he has a perspective here of a divine viewpoint. He will eat curds and honey at the time. He knows enough to refuse evil and choose good. But before he knows enough to refuse evil and choose good, then uh, this uh, invasion is going to be done. The land whose two kings you dread will be forsaken. See, this alliance, these kings joining together, just had, had King, uh, who is it here? King Ahaz had him terrified. All right, so... Is, is Jesus the, the answer to keep Ahaz from being terrified? When Jesus is born in the manger, does that convince Ahaz that, that uh, these nations aren't going to be a threat? Well, no, of course not. That's 700 years later. Ahaz is long dead. Something shorter has to happen. And so we'll notice now in chapter 8, the short-term fulfillment on this. Then the Lord said to me, Take for yourself a large tablet and write on it in ordinary letters, Swift is the booty, speedy is the prey. And I will take to myself faithful witnesses for testimony. Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Jeberechiah. All right, so I approached the prophetess and she conceived and gave birth to a son. Now, she, um, this was not a miraculous conception. All right, if she was uh, a, a virgin, then she no longer is because he approached her. Okay, and that's, we know what that is. That's, that's an idiom. Um, he did more than approach her, but that's, that's, <laughs> that's, what, the, that's what the expression is. Okay, uh, it means they, they had sex. And um, she gave birth, conceived and gave birth to a son. Then the Lord said to me, name him Maher Shalal Hashbaz, which is the Hebrew for swift is the booty, sweetie, uh, speedy is the prey. And so... This is what he was uh, told. Write it in the tablets in these large letters. Take it to these witnesses. And then the prophet Isaiah and the prophetess, we don't even know her name, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Isaiah, um, have a baby. And they name him Maher Shalal Hashbaz. Which I think is beautiful. Sharon's never let me even put that on the short list for any baby's name. Yeah. Bob's considered it. All right. But now notice the similar terminology for before the boy knows. You see this? This language is so identical to what we saw in chapter seven. That we identify this as a short term fulfillment of what was spoken in chapter seven. But, but God is walking Isaiah and Mrs. Isaiah through this fulfillment. So they can they can live it out as an example, as a prototype, as a as a typology but still it's waiting to be fulfilled down the road. For before the boy knows how to cry out my father or my mother, it's always nice when they say dada before they say mama, um, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria, just like was said in chapter 7. 
that the land of the two kings whom you dread. Okay. The land of the two kings of whom you dread. All right. And um, and by the way, I think I miss I, I did misspeak earlier. Uh, I said, did I say earlier that this was after the northern kingdom had been had been destroyed? It's not after the northern kingdom had been destroyed. The, the northern kingdom is one of the two kings. <laughs> it's uh, it's Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, and he has teamed up with uh, Rezin, Reason, the king of Aram. Okay, don't know that he had a reason, but he teamed up with Reason. Anyway, those are the two kings, and and so the short term fulfillment of this. A virgin shall conceive and have a son, or a young woman of marriageable age shall conceive and bear a son. The short-term fulfillment of this is the prophetess that Isaiah marries, and they together they raise up uh, Meher Shalal Hashbaz. And uh, he becomes the example. And before he knows enough, before he's even old enough to say dada or mama, the... Um, the uh, uh, alliance here between reason and Pekah is done away with. And what happens is Assyria comes sweeping in. This is where Assyria comes sweeping in and destroys Damascus or uh, destroys the, uh, that land and then destroys Samaria and so forth. Okay, so there's that. But then we get over to Matthew chapter 1 and what do we see? We see... Um, Joseph, uh, wanting to go ahead and divorce Mary uh, because they have not yet consummated. They're just under an engagement, which is binding, which is legal, which does mean they are husband and wife legally. You can't break an engagement like this without actual divorce proceedings. Uh, but before they had come together, another euphemism, um, she's pregnant. Okay. And Joseph knows he didn't do it. So what does he believe? What does he think? But uh, being a righteous man, not wanting to disgrace her, uh, planned to send her away secretly to have a discreet divorce and not to put her to open shame. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus. Now, the fun study is the study between Emmanuel and Maher Shalal Hashbaz and Jesus. Okay? Because you've got to put all of those names together to, to uh, really detail this whole, this whole thing. And uh, for He will save His people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. And then they cite Isaiah 7.14. The virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son. And so uh, Joseph awoke from his sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded, took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin, kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son and he called his name Jesus. The Catholics say he kept her a virgin forever, but the Bible says he only kept her a virgin until the birth of their first son. After that, he no longer kept her a virgin. And that's, you know, that's what the Bible says. The Catholics say something else. Okay, so... Short-term, long-term. There's a whole lot of study to this, and it's neat to see how the different things work together. Um, now, could somebody kind of raise their hand at verse 22 when, when Matthew says all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the word of the Lord? Someone could raise their hand and say, oh, 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 but th that was already fulfilled with Maher Shalal Hashbaz. Right, yeah, you can't fulfill that again. Well, says who? <laughs> okay, um, this is uh, this is again part of the neat, um, and there's there's more of this too. Like when they come out of Egypt, let me sh let me show you another one. Out of Egypt, look at chapter two and verse fifteen. They flee to Egypt. They stay there till Herod dies. The angel says, "Okay, you can come out now," and they come back. But what's interesting is uh, this was to fulfill in verse. 2.15, it says, this was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. And there again, somebody could raise their hand and say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. That wasn't even a prophecy. You're saying there was a prophecy now? 
Because when it was given in Hosea, it wasn't a prophecy. When it was given in Hosea, it was history. Talking about the Exodus. <laughs> talking about the Lord said, you know, out of Egypt, I called my son. Talking about how he brought Israel out of Egypt and through the Red Sea and through the wilderness and into the land and all blah, blah, blah. When Hosea gave that scripture, it was not a prophecy. It was a history statement. But when it comes fulfilled here with Mary and Joseph and Jesus fleeing to Egypt, coming out of Egypt, when this happens, now we see it was also a prophecy. Isn't that beautiful? And in part, this is, this is, uh, this is why it's so um, glorious. <laughs> um, and uh, why God in his omniscience and his foreknowledge and in, in, in his prophetic plan that announces things before they come to pass and then announces things that we don't recognize were announced until after they come to pass. And then, oh, yeah, by the way, that was a prophecy. Right. Cool. Didn't know it at the time. But now we see clearly, obviously, that's what that was. All right. So much of the typology, so much of the, the Old Testament is not really the beauty of it is not seen until the reality is unfolded in Christ or unfolded in the Gospels or unfolded in the New Testament. And now that we have the reality, we can look back and it's it's much more beautiful looking back at it under those circumstances. OK. In any event, there's 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 a lot more to deal with that. I'm, I'm glad that. They're doing this right now in Kiev. The, the Word of God Bible College is going through a study on the prophets right now. and It's neat to see the different things. Because skeptics and critics and other folks say that, well, you know, they, they, they mock like there's anything as fulfilled prophecy. And they say, well, you know, yeah, they, they read about it. And so they deliberately went out and tried to do things that they could say was fulfillment. They, they just, they were phony about trying to, have you read, you know, encountered skeptics like this? And they say, well, they just manipulated things to say that they were fulfilling scripture. Okay. Well, that's, that's a lame thing anyway, but that, that assumes that they understood all of the prophecies. And here we just see one that no one could have possibly known was a prophecy. You're telling me they engineered that flight to Egypt so they could come out of Egypt so they could claim a fulfilled prophecy of a prophecy they didn't even know was a prophecy until it was fulfilled? If they didn't know it was a prophecy, how could they engineer a, a phony fulfillment of it? And how did Jesus... Yeah, Jesus was real clever to, to arrange for his birth in Bethlehem. You know? And he was, he was very clever to, to find a, uh, a virgin to, uh, <laughs> to impregnate and, and somehow get born by. So many of the fulfilled scriptures, uh, the, the human disciples or Jesus, they had no ability to, to achieve them. All right. Back to Matthew. So there's there's uh, interesting aspects of this. Secondly, now uh, we have short term prophecies confirming the reality of long term prophecies. And then secondly, point two, the Lord specifically cited Passover as the design day of his substitutionary death. The Lord specifically cited Passover as the designed day of his substitutionary death. It could not be Palm Monday. It could not be Tuesday. It could not be Wednesday. It could not be Thursday. It has to be on Nisan 14. It has to be on the day in which the Passover lambs are sacrificed. Doctrinally, of course, we understand Jesus Christ is our Passover. We studied that in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 5, 7. But it is a designed day. It's been designed. He's the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world. It is the pivotal day of, of all human history between Alpha and Omega. That at the consummation of the ages, our Savior uh, assumed, died spiritually to achieve our, our uh, redemption. Accepting God's wrath. I point out that it's designed by God the Father, and it's important that we identify with that here as well. Acts 2.23, Acts 3.18, Acts 4.28. Um, the design day of His substitutionary death. What was Passover about? The Passover lamb was a substitutionary death. The lamb died so that your firstborn son did not. Okay. Do we need to turn back to Exodus chapter 12? 
All right. I gave it away. I should have quizzed you on that. What chapter do you turn to to find Passover when it was first instituted in the Old Testament? Exodus chapter 12. Yeah, you were listening. Okay. Passover was designed as a substitutionary death so that the firstborn son does not have to die. And what is that picture for us? The firstborn son who does die, that's God the Father's only begotten son. The firstborn son does die on a substitutionary basis so that you and I can have eternal life. And thank goodness, thank God, that this was the plan. Okay? And so Passover is the day. He's not going to die on Pentecost. He's not going to die on Booths. He's not going to die on any other day of the uh, Jewish festival year. It's going to be on Passover. It's the only appropriate day for uh, the spiritual death of the Lamb of God. Let's uh, look at some of these. Peter really picked up on this. These early sermons in, in Acts are interesting because they're, they're so soon after the ascension. So soon, uh, in fact, starting in Acts 2 here on the day of Pentecost. And um, it's good to see how the uh, apostles responded here at the foundation of the church. Acts 2.23, they receive the Holy Spirit in verses 1 through 4. And then uh, their first assignment is to give the gospel to Jews in all these languages. And uh, there were Jews that had assembled uh, for the Pentecost feast. And uh, they're here in all of these, uh, with all these native languages. And so the gospel message of Jesus Christ going forth is... um, Pretty, uh, pretty interesting to, to view this. Remember, tongues is not just some babbling gibberish. Tongues is, uh, is uh, known human languages, but unknown to you prior to, uh, prior to speaking forth the mighty things of God. So how is it we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? The purpose for that is to proclaim the uh, gospel of Jesus Christ in a language you don't otherwise know. Then... Um, His sermon starts in verse 14. He starts to quote a whole lot of Old Testament, starts to show the fulfillment of these things. But then he says in verse 22, Men of Israel, listen to these words, Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs. Miracles and wonders. What are the signs? The signs are the short-term prophecies. The, The signs are the... uh, along with the miracles and wonders, the short-term prophecies. He said he would be crucified in two days. He said he would be resurrected on the third day. Okay? Miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man delivered over, notice now, by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. By the predetermined plan and the foreknowledge of God. You can't ever separate foreknowledge from predetermined plan. God never does anything contrary to what He knows. And uh, everything, by the way, that He predestines, everything that He preordains is not going to be incompatible with what He foreknows. They go hand in hand. So, the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. You, nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put Him to death. So there were tools involved, human instruments. The Jewish leaders were one such tool. But even they had to bring in the Romans, godless men. And uh, so they're also human instruments. But back up to uh, the first part of the verse, who is it that did this? God the Father did this. God the Father did the miracles. God the Father did the wonders. God the Father did the signs. God the Father delivered over. Because his plan called for it. When did the Father first start planning for this? On Palm Monday? No. Did he start planning for this on, uh, in Matthew 16 with, with uh, the message there? No. Obviously, he was planning for this when, in Exodus 12 when he gave the Passover. But prior to that even, when did he first start planning for this? When Adam and Eve sinned, did he say, Oh my goodness, let me come up with something here to take care of this. Did he plan for this as a, 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 after Adam and Eve sinned? Before. 
before. That's right. We understand the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God is the foundation of the world. It is the eternal life conference. It is the divine decree. That's why in Revelation 13, he's the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world. This was the plan of God the moment God the Father determined that a volitional universe would give greater glory to Jesus Christ. And by creating a volitional universe, angels and humanity, there's going to be rebellion. And he knows that. And so he makes the provision prior. And we can rejoice in that. All right. Made a big impact on Peter. And uh, put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. He was judged and condemned. He was spiritually slain. And yet, it was imputed to him. He himself was innocent of all sin. It was impossible for him to be held in its power. How can the sinless Son of God remain bound by the bonds of spiritual or physical death? Impossible. Uh, so it made a big impact here on, uh, on Peter, part of his preaching in this. Now, uh, you get down to chapter 3, and comes back again in his second sermon. And um, verse 13 says, The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified His servant Jesus, the one whom you delivered and disowned in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. But put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are all witnesses. And on the basis of faith in his name, it is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man who you see and know. And the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect health in the presence of all. And now, brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance, just as your rulers did also. But the things which God announced beforehand... This is why Old Testament, New Testament, the, the ministry of the prophets is so awesome. The things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all his prophets. Why did God not? Why was Abel not the, the seed of the woman that redeemed Adam and Eve? Why were, were there 4,000 years and more, 6,000 years and more of, of, uh, of, of history and prophets and messages leading up to the Christ? See... So that these things could be told beforehand. These things could be explained ahead of time. The things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all His prophets, that His Christ would suffer, He has thus fulfilled. Did all that come to pass? You bet. Literally. Literally. So announced beforehand. Announced beforehand that His Christ would suffer, He has thus fulfilled. Why did Jonah spend three days in the belly of the, of the whale? Okay, it was all a part of this whole program that God had from Alpha to Omega. That's right. But all of these announcements, all of these messages, all these written scriptures, all these verbal messages, all these living prophets and their examples, all pointing ahead. Okay, you know, and this is where I've, I've had fruit with Muslims because they changed the story. They put they put Ishmael on the on the altar there instead of Isaac. They say that Ishmael was his beloved son. They changed the story between Isaac and, and Ishmael as far as which son that Abraham loved, and uh, and which son Abraham was willing to kill, and they changed that story to promote their own Islam, right? But then they go beyond that to say that Jesus didn't die on the cross, and you just want to say hello. Why was that story given? Why was that pattern laid out there? What was that looking forward to? If it was not a father who was willing to sacrifice his son. And the fact that the beloved son was spared is said in contrast to the beloved son who could not be spared. He could not be delivered from the cross. He had to go through the cross. And so when you only change part of the story and deny the rest of it, you've got a, a an internally inconsistent issue there. And... and um, Hopefully, you know, a Muslim will be listening to that and say, you know what? That's how Ergen Kainer got saved. Ergen Kainer got saved when he realized Islam was a pack of lies. The Jews were God's chosen people. Jesus died on the cross for his sins. All right. Well, we've got points three, four, and five to come, but that'll have to wait till next week. Father, thank you for your truth. Thy word is truth. 
We thank You and we praise You in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.